1: Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, here with my two uh, co-hosts, Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, And Amy Bird, not pastor of a church in (laughs) Harrisonburg, Virginia, but uh, the housewife, theologian, and all-round busybody and troublemaker. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Busybodies, Couldn't resist that, sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are pleased today to welcome a guest to the program. His name is Rutledge Etheridge III. That's a great name. Son, I presume, Thank you. of Rutledge Etheridge II. Is that? Is that, <laughs> who,
2: who, that is correct. He was, I think, a science fiction author, was he not? He was. He published six books, I believe it was. Um, and so I, I grew up, and one of the fondest memories of my childhood was falling asleep to my dad clacking away at a Commodore 128 to turn out a 500 page wow. manuscript.
3: Wow. Wow. Um, there
2: yeah. you go.
1: Well, the, the latest holder of the name Rutley Jethrich, is not a writer <laughs> of science fiction uh, books, but is currently an assistant professor of biblical studies at Geneva College in Western Pennsylvania, local rival to Grove, I should say. That's it's, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he was formerly a chaplain or the chaplain, at Geneva College up until uh, this academic year. And he's also an ordained minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. So welcome to the program, Rutt.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Great. And we're here to talk about your new book, uh, God-Breathed, Connecting Through Scripture to God, Others, the Natural World, and Yourself, uh, which I think by the time we broadcast this program will have been published by Crown and Covenant publications. Yes. Uh, so, tell us uh, tell us a bit about the book. Tell us what motivated you to write it, what you hope to have achieved through the writing of this book.
2: Sure. I think the m- most immediate cause of writing is the work with young adults that I'm privileged to do uh, by virtue of my role here at Geneva, but also uh, for almost 20 years now and in various capacities as a high school teacher, youth group leader, uh, counsellor. Uh, At one point, I led a ministry team to incarcerated youth in inner city Dayton. And so, I've just been privileged to labor on that particular mission field among those particular people. And conversations uh, in the classroom and beyond uh, really got me thinking along certain lines. I I came across a a line from Augustine, you know, a, a rhetorical question where Augustine asks, who has the art and the power to make himself and I think our culture, uh, pop culture anyway, has foolishly answered, we do. We have the art, we have the power, we have the divine authority to make ourselves, to define ourselves. And of course, to define yourself is to deify yourself and to, even if you're not intending this, to dictate life for everyone around you who must then acquiesce to your particular uh, demands with regard to deity. And I noticed among the young adults that I was working with that there was a deep, deep disconnect um particularly among the christians uh, between the claims of jesus and the way that they were living their lives the way that they were uh, embarking upon the christian faith and yet in such a way that had such little reference to scripture and i i was fascinated by and and saddened by that disconnect and i I really wanted to dive deeper and explore and and this book uh, is largely resulted that exploration Mm. uh
4: so in in kind of Approaching your book from from the beginning, and this idea that you just mentioned—this uh, kind of compulsion in us to to kind of uh, attain a, a level of deity, to, to see ourselves as our own uh, as our own makers—in um, yeah. in a very conversational way. You know, your book is is definitely written uh, in this in this very approachable, um, very accessible conversational way, and and yet. You know, you're kind of taking your reader by the hand and, and guiding them into um, some kind of historic controversies, uh, even even philosophical categories. Um, you, you deal with uh, Immanuel Kant, yeah. um, uh, 18th century philosopher and a very influential thinker whose ideas still do resonate today for the most part, I would say, at least.
1: And, Absolutely.
4: And how does he or... or how does how does his legacy philosophically impact us in terms of what your project is for this for this book? What did we learn from Kant or what did we gain from Kant that, that makes some of this a
2: challenge? Yeah, I think that notion of, of disconnect and, and separation really becomes philosophically institutionalized under Kant. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to blame in the book Immanuel Kant for every uh, bad thing that's happened in history, just every bad thing that's happened in history since Kant. No, um, No, I. You know, in in his day, you know, Kant was trying to honor the Lord, you know, as as he understood it. And coming out of Kant is an epistemology, a a way of knowing that I think separates us from God and places so much onus and impetus upon the knower and what the knower is able to do or not do in reaching uh, out beyond himself or herself. And, and the very essence of the Christian faith is that whatever limits of knowledge we have, whether noetic limits, whether any kind of creaturely limits inherently, um, God has bridged that gap. God has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us through the world and through the word um, and Kant in many ways I think put up a a barrier what I call in the book the the ceiling of self Mm -hmm. which again emphasizes that we cannot really know beyond our perception and that anything that we really need to know about God he will have made himself clear through our human reason Mm -hmm. and Kant insisted that this reason must function autonomously um, for various reasons, one of which is if we are to be held morally accountable by God, uh, then we need to be uh, autonomous, we need to be independent and be able to work out our thoughts about him, and, and God's voice in us is that, that voice of reason, um, and so particular theological distinctions regarding the Christian God get blurred or disregarded altogether. And I think fast forwarding to our day, uh, we live in a very fragmented, uh, full of dichotomies, uh, disintegrated kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in many ways, not to be simplistic, but some of that owes its legacy to some of the, the movements a couple hundred years ago in Western Europe where we're separated from God. and And we've learned to think, good yeah. you know that means i can define myself that means i can define my morality and, mm-hmm. and as i was mentioning earlier christians have have imbibed that and and we live without reference to scripture as a divine word mm-hmm. and our lives end up in shipwreck and we think well where was jesus why didn't he stop me from this mm-hmm. i was just following my heart like he wants me to and and this
4: kind of self deification i think as you point out well uh, is magnified when we come together and do it, um, so you know, you you one of the headings in in this chapter, you know, is you have this very interesting statement: none of us are as dumb as all of us,
1: and, which which I thought was
4: great. And again, it's the idea that you know, romantic notions about the power of community um, don't work out so well if we're talking about community that's divorced from the way God has created to be A community that is outside of Christ, doesn't. Tend to nearly work out as well as uh as as oftentimes it's advertised. You know, precisely. You, you go into some of these yeah. issues, like we see, like you know, the hookup culture. Uh, right. You mentioned, yeah, how how we right. how we tend to look for love in a in a community that's divorced from Christ.
2: Yeah, I think that. You know, one of the benefits of of being in a postmodern age is that we've seen, you know, the diabolical dangers of individualism. Yeah. And, and it's ironic because, as philosophers will say, sometimes, you know, they characterize our, our age as a kind of a hyper modernity. You know, there's so much emphasis on autonomy, but postmodernism has taught us to look with skepticism uh, and and to say, was well, autonomy really all it's cracked up to be? We need community but the problem is community based on what? It, it's good to be in numbers. It's good to have people surrounding you. It's good just to have the tangible presence of another human being side by side. But, you know, as Francis Schaefer famously said, if, if there's no absolute by which to judge society, then society is absolute. Mm. And we might feel very safe in a community one day, but then we disagree with that community and we could find ourselves on the outs tomorrow with, with no recourse and, and no appeal.
3: It's funny you mentioned Schaefer because that's exactly who I was thinking about when I began reading your manuscript. Because your target is this, this audience of young adults asking these you know, deep philosophical and theological questions. Yes. And you really do such a good job of blending philosophy, theology, and apologetics. And by asking these big questions that so many do ask, like, can we even know truth? And so you've already mentioned this, the ceiling of self yeah. as you refer to it. And I really loved that illustration and you kind of um, really play that out and build on it. And I, I thought maybe you could answer for us, like, why is the ceiling of self? You know, why is that such a lonely and wonderless place?
2: Yeah, really good question. So by the ceiling of self, again, it's just that idea that we can't get beyond our own perceptions and I think maybe the best practical example of, of an answer to, the, to that question, we hear all the time in our culture about my truth. You know, we, we want to be a culture that really affirms the individual within community and by community so we can be ourselves. That's, that's the intention. But when you really think about it, that language, my truth, you know, that's the language of separation that pushes other people away and my truth is different from your truth. We are different people and we dare not invade one another's sovereignty with any uh, claims um, and any kind of power moves. And, and so it's it really sets us up for an inherently defensive and suspicious way of life because everything becomes power games. Everything becomes someone else trying to colonialize me and, and, and maneuver me from my truth to their truth. Um, and so there's this inherent nervousness and anxiety um, that that just has to be uh, when there's no settled truth upon which we can unite. So, my truth, my inability to get beyond my truth eventually collapses on me not only has it separated me from god because i've essentially said in my truth that god can only speak in so far as i want to agree with what he says Uh, but it separates me from others and then the most insidious irony of of this this approach to life which is meant to free the individual it also separates me from myself Mm. Um, because if all i have in life is my perception then all i have in my understanding of self is Perception right. and, and not reality. So that means that I can't know myself as I actually am, mm. and and that's perhaps the one of the deepest levels of loneliness. Um, and and we see souls just entombed in this kind of loneliness. They're walking in a crowd, but they feel so desperately detached and unable to actually touch um, and 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 have a relationship. That feels anywhere near real. Mm -hmm.
3: I know my husband and I over last weekend, we were away for our anniversary and we are sitting by the pool reading two separate books and I... I said, hey, take a listen to this quote, and I read something to him about the crisis of loneliness in our culture today. And my husband says, oh, my gosh, like I'm reading about the exact same thing in my book and two totally different books. But um, this whole crisis is so relevant right now. And I think that you address that so well and how we've gotten here And, and another, you know, even then the way that we think about love, um, under the ceiling of self, love becomes, um, self-service, how other people serve us and, um, and that's lonely as well.
2: Exactly. Because eventually that person will let us down and, and we let ourselves down as well. We have all these lofty aspirations of commitment, um, and, and we just can't carry it through in, in our own strength, um, you know, there was an, uh, an article in the Atlantic, I, I want to say four or five years ago. Um, and it was a, an essentially, essentially a survey of social media and just how social media is revealing, ironically, just how deeply alone, you know, we actually are. Mm-hmm. And that's and one of the things I think is often uh, misunderstood um, about millennials or however you want to characterize them. They're so often maligned uh, by older Christians. We have to realize that, Rising generations have grown up with this stuff as the unquestioned ethos of their existence. Right. Uh, they really, and this is not a comment on their intelligence at all, but this this is what they've they've grown up with. They the cognitive categories have shifted. We can speak English to one another, but we're speaking a very very different language. Mm. And so, when it comes to living life for me, you know, living a literally self centered life, not you know rising generations don't think of that as an inherently bad thing self-centered not in the pejorative sense but but actually self-centered i am truth you know i it's my truth it's my reality no one can stand in the way of me pursuing my truth and so when they live this out they're in essence told that they're gods you know jesus says i am the way and the truth and the life and we've learned to say the same thing about ourselves and then we find that reality won't bend to our personal truth, and we feel like cosmic failures. We we just don't understand it, and, and we've we've lost the capacity to, un- like you said, to understand love mm. as anything other than self service. Because what is life but self service? I wonder though if
1: if somebody would push back on you at this point, right, and say, mm. there's a sense in which when you look at young people today. They do actually exhibit a, a strong consensus on some things that they all consider to be true. Uh, yes, tolerance, for example, uh, in terms of the sexual revolution, except for what they find intolerable. Yeah, uh, but I'm not saying they, that they they don't find some things intolerable. Okay. But I'm thinking there is a consensus. Mm-hmm. There, It's not that every individual is doing their own thing. There's Mm -hmm. a social dimension to this. Right. Um, You know, the the lesbian and gay community is called a community for a reason, that it is actually a community. Environmental issues, for Mm -hmm. example, are things that young people are very passionate about. And that's not to say that I agree with them on these things, but Mm -hmm. there is a sense in which we're not seeing the fragmentation of society in terms of just lots and lots of individuals. We're almost seeing the emergence of new types of, of community. How would right. you critique, respond to that sort of pushback?
2: Yeah, I, I think there certainly are those very welcome emphases on the need for community, on rallying around a cause that is a good cause, but... Um, you know, a friend to a couple of us, if not all of us, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, um, writes and speaks about how she really learned hospitality from the LGBTQ community. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that we don't want to do in an overly simplistic critique of culture is just jettison the fact that each of us does, in fact, bear the image of an inherently social God. Um, and so there are things that we are passionate about. There are things that we unite about. But I think what we've developed. In culture, we've kind of developed an allergic reaction to anything, any rule, any law that would, especially in morality and ethics, seek to impose itself upon a community and say that it doesn't matter how sincerely you believe this, this is just wrong and bad for humanity. And so... Again, we're we're seeing the need for community, and that's a very good thing. But a, a community guided by what? And yeah. and one of the things I strive to do in the book is to show those who are galvanized by the very uh, concerns you just mentioned, Carl, that in many ways the Bible is their friend. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, those who love the environment, you know, uh, Christians, older Christians are. Particularly in certain theological strains, are sometimes known by kind of a "let it all burn." Jesus is going to come mm-hmm. back soon anyway. Careless neglect of of creation, and and they're rightly criticized by unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look to the Bible, you look to Job 38 and following, you look to the Psalms, and it's just this beautiful celebration of God's creation, and 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 we can say to those for whom the environment is a very real and abiding concern, um, this is the Lord's concern as well. Mm-hmm. But where scripture will part company with the environmentalist is when the environmentalist begins to value other creatures higher than human beings uh, or the planet itself as somehow the ultimate good that we are pursuing rather than the one who created it uh, and gave it to us to enjoy and to care for and cultivate. So I, I hope I'm getting at what you're, what you're mentioning yeah, there, yeah. Carl. I, I appreciate that.
4: Yeah. And, and the, the idea in terms of this individualism um, that, that is, at times, kind of almost masquerading as, as community. What there is, yeah. what there seems to be is a, a, a common um, allergic reaction to any notion that there is an authoritative voice that speaks to me from outside of me. Right, and of course, at, at the most fundamental level, that's what we're saying about the Bible: is that it right. is uh, God's uh, voice to us. Uh, it's authoritative, and it's not a voice that comes from outside of me, but I mean, it comes from inside of me, but speaks to me from the outside. And that's uh, that, that's a very unpleasant um, thing for for a lot of moderns to uh, to, to grasp. I, I want to be the authoritative voice. For me. At
2: the yeah, at the end of the day, I think it boils down to that. You know, we, we want to be the one who decides what is good and, and true and right. And mm-hmm. and that's why once again in a postmodern culture, you know, there's all kinds of talk about spirituality and, and communities that are based on spirituality and Spirituality, as opposed to religion, because religion comes top down, external to internal. We want something that wells up from within, and a sense of transcendence that we can tame in many ways. Even when we feel like we're carried away by it, we're only carried away to the extent that we want to be, or we can just move on to something else. And so, yeah, lots of communities and lots of good things happening, and 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 we need to take note of those things. Um, And and yet, at the same time, what's at the core? You know, what is the core? Commitment of what is life? Who gets to decide? What is truth? Mm-hmm. Can it be known? Uh, those are kind of the tectonic issues that I'm I'm trying to go at um, in this book.
4: You know, in in one of your chapters, it's it's entitled "Is the Bible Broken?" and you start to right. delve into what is, you know, in my experience as as a pastor, the chief thing that people struggle with uh, in in terms of what what challenges their their faith it 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 forms kind of the uh, the 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 complex of crises that will cause them to to struggle you know so the existence right. of suffering in the world what what's going on injustices etc and you deal interestingly you know you you deal with bart ehrman who yes. is uh, kind of the, uh, the, the poster child out there. The media loves him. He's a professor at um, University of North Carolina, I believe. And yeah. uh, he's, he's, of course, uh, a well-known critic of, of the Bible and evangelical Christianity and writes uh, popular-level books that Barnes & Noble likes to put on full display that, that really seek to undermine the trustworthiness of, of Scripture. Kind of right. speak a little bit about how you, how you interact with Ehrman. With
2: Yeah. And and I want to be careful not to suggest that I'm some kind of scholar, you know, on airmen, but I'm interacting with, one particular book of his yeah. and by his own admission it's a very personal book mm-hmm. and it has in essence chronicles his journey out of the faith um, and it's a book called god's problem and i wanted to use that as a window into the the deep life traumas and the inner workings mm-hmm. and thinkings uh, behind so many self-professed ex-christians mm-hmm. and and it is that that essential uh problem that they they look at the bible the sunday school stories they grew up with the rather casually told tales in scripture of of some really terrible things Mm -hmm. um scripture doesn't treat them casually but the church has uh, and they look around at the world and, and they look at the pain in their own lives and you know, it, it's, it's almost uh, a softer version of, of the classic expression of the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. If he's good, he would want to. Evil exists, therefore. And, and this is Ehrman's um, exodus out of the Christian faith primarily uh, for that particular reason. He, he thinks that God has uh, adopted a non-interventionist policy in the world, which raises the question of whether the biblical God even exists.
3: You know, it's interesting because you address the issue of just biblical illiteracy among people in the church. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of young adults, you know, may have grown up in the church and go away to college, even Christian college, and lack in any kind of biblical literacy. And then, yeah. then you also address this complete loss of wonder then, um, that they are Word with church bored right. with God bored with the word and yeah. um, you know how did how did you address that in the book?
2: Yeah, it's something that I've I've thought about actually for a long time, even going back you know to childhood. This it just always seemed to me there was something in between us and and our bearing the full import of what we claim to believe as mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I did a um a family camp um. And a series of of talks that were basically designed to get us into the Bible's view of the Bible. and And this book came largely out of that in some ways. And think of just the expression, "The Word of God." you know, just really let that settle in on you for a minute. The Word of mm-hmm. God. Um, if we have anywhere near a proper or even approaching a, a proper concept of a being worthy of the title of God, mm-hmm. then if this God speaks, how are we not in awe by that? Precisely. And and so I have a section in in uh, chapter two, you know, called odd ODD that we are not A-W-E-D. <laughs> and, and I just didn't understand that. And, and I found it in my own life as well. This wasn't me looking around and naysaying others. Um, and, And it's just an example of of more of that disconnect where churchy language, theological language is used and can be the circumstances and the conditions in which um, a young person grows up, but it never really connects or it's possible for it not to connect. And if it's not connecting among the leaders that, you know, of course leads into what Ehrman wrote about it's, these are just words. These are theories. They don't actually work in real life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is so vital for us to remember about, scripture is that these are very real people that we are told about. Um, It's not as if Ehrman brings up anything that the biblical authors hadn't truly wrestled with on a profound existential level. And I think the more that we take the Bible very, very seriously and take the Bible's view of itself very seriously, you know, what, what a book of, of, of soul inspiring wonders we have, you know, the, the teachings of Jesus and Um, Paul referring to scripture as nothing less than the very breath of God. Um, Paul knew what he was talking about. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Um, And so I think to recover that sense of wonder and that sense of, of the Bible really does matter in real life. You know, we, we need to recover not only the Bible's view of Jesus, but Jesus's view of scripture. Um, And, and I think that I love it when I see it in the classroom uh, or, or counseling, when the young person or, or adults realizes and, and the light goes on and it's like, wait a minute, this is in scripture and this actually played out in real life. You know, this actually made sense. I actually trusted Jesus here and you know, it, it, there's that connection, you know, there's that, that beautiful, wow, this God is real and he has spoken and, and this stuff actually works not to be a pragmatist, but this, you know, truth has its way of, of working itself out.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, we're running out of time and there's, you address so many different big questions in the book so well. But uh, one thing that I you know, wanted to kind of close with is all the pop culture references that you have in the book. And uh, it's, it's entertaining the way that you work it into the writing, but you're also like tapping into the culture as you do that and, and showing the relevance of, of scripture and just of our faith in general. But, um, So you have all these uh, song lyrics in the book as well. And uh, at the end though, of the book, you focus on the Psalms. Right. And I I just wanted to kind of close out with, with this quote from towards the end of your book, because I just think it's so powerful as we've been talking about wonder and the loss of wonder. Um, Mm. You say communion with God, loving what you call withness is what we humans were made for. And it's how we grow into our true selves It's what Jesus lived and it's what he provides for those who trust him. The Psalms are vital for this formation. As we believe and sing the songs, the Holy Spirit composed, the Holy Spirit composes us. And then you say the Psalms invite us to think of God as a musician. I loved, I loved that section that you wrote on the Psalms. Oh uh, thank you. Thank you for writing that. And I know that um, you know, a lot of musicians are gonna really appreciate that section of scripture as well. So I wanted to make sure to include that in our little discussion here today about your book. And thank you so much, Rhett, for coming on to talk about it. We're excited to recommend it to our friends today. And if you go over to our Website at mortificationofspend.org. You can register to try to win a copy of God Breathed, and it's uh, published by Crown and Covenant. And we're excited to be able to give away a few of those copies. And uh, while you're over there as well, please remember to keep us in mind as you are donating to different ministries. Um, We pretty much run off of your donations here, and we've upgraded from our gum and paper clips, and uh, we were able to have. Melted chocolate today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Melted
1: chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we get more donations, we may be able to refrigerate it and actually eat it next time.
3: <laughs> no, this is sophisticated. We're supposed to dip yeah. fruit in it, okay? This is sophisticated chocolate. But no, so we're very excited to be talking to Rut today, and thank you so much for being on the program with us, Rut.
2: Well, thank you all for having me very much. I appreciate it very much.
3: Yeah, and thanks for listening. We look forward to talking to everyone next week.
2: I don't care if it rains or freezes Long as I got my plastic Jesus Riding on the dashboard on my car. Through my trials and
0: tribulations And my travels through the nations And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... This is not something
4: that we are making up or that we are in any way uh, empowered to make up
2: on our own. In fact, it's something that's a response to who God is as he's revealed himself to us in his word and what he has said about how we're supposed to approach him.
0: That interview is next time. Join us then.
1: It's also not live, so if you say something you wish you hadn't said, uh, or you say something that you want to go back and re-say in a clearer fashion, or if Carl says something that offends you, let us yeah, know, or, and we can. Or uh, Amy uses some profanity that you want to, <laughs> we can just go. Can back. we have like
4: a safety
2: word? <laughs> if, yeah. Carl says something.
4: if you say foliage, we'll know to back yeah, off. Yeah. Foliage. <laughs> okay. And, uh,
1: I'll make you, a note of that. You're also, I assume you're an ordained minister in the RPCNA.
4: Exactly. Oh, have you guys been singing the new Bethel music stuff at your
2: church? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> no Hillsong. This our, we are um, perennially enmeshed in our own debates between blue Psalters and red Psalters, and eventually we'll have the purple Psalter. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're far too removed from anything so contemporary or relevant. <laughs> <So>. hmm. <laughs>